Okay, we'll, uh, we'll go ahead and get started. I know everybody here, but just for the sake of introductions, again, I'm Pastor Dan. This is the first of four God Talks we're going to offer over the year at Queen Anne Lutheran. And for today's God Talk, we're going to focus on God, or in this case, faith and politics, particularly given the proximity of the upcoming election. Our format will, will basically be a, uh, an introduction, a brief conversation with a few questions that I have prepared for our speakers, and then we'll open the conversation up to everyone all around the theme of, of God and or faith and politics. And in particular, I'm interested in looking at how the faith of our guests informs uh, potentially not only what they cover, but how they cover what they cover. Uh, and again, please note we are recording today's session. So joining us uh, this morning is, uh, is a reporter from KUOW and a correspondent for NPR. The reporter is uh, Amy Radel, and Amy is a reporter at KUOW where she covers politics, government, and law enforcement, everything from legalizing marijuana to policing to campaign funding. So pretty wide array of, yes. of coverage there. Uh, Amy grew up in uh, Omaha, Nebraska, and uh, I have in my notes, which may account for the uh, Lutheran roots of her faith, but we'll find that out perhaps in today's discussion. Uh, she uh, um, is the winner of uh, re several regional awards, as well as an Edward R. Murrow Award for investigative reporting and coverage of gun measures. Martin Costi uh, is a correspondent at NPR's uh, National Desk. He covers law enforcement and privacy and has been focused on police and the use of force, particularly relevant these last six months to a year uh, before the 2014 protests in Ferguson. And that coverage led to the creation of NPR's Criminal Justice Collaborative. In addition to criminal justice reporting, he's contributed to NPR news coverage of major world events, including the 2010 earthquake in Haiti and the 2011 uprising in Libya. Both he and Amy are married. They live here in Seattle and they are members of Finney Ridge Lutheran Church, although I am secretly trying to recruit them to be members of Queen Anne Lutheran Church. Please don't tell their pastors. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. We'd like to welcome you both. And I'd like to begin just with a question We've heard a little bit about your background. I'd like to know for everyone else here as well, if you could say a little more about what you do and what it's like, especially now during a pandemic and or upcoming election uh, to do the kind of work that you do. So yeah, I, uh, I started at KUOW. Martin and I lived overseas uh, while he was the South America reporter for NPR. We met in Minnesota at Minnesota Public Radio. Then um, he got the job in South America. So we went, we went and lived in Brazil and had an amazing time. I freelanced for radio shows during that time too. Um, and then we landed in Seattle and um, I got a job at KUOW and our kids were really little then. And so I was able to do a part-time job and that kind of let, so I, I still work just, you know, uh, three days a week. And I think that's what led to me becoming really a generalist because I just wanted, I was so grateful to them for letting me work that kind of schedule. And so I just wanted to be up for anything 
and be really flexible so that the time I was, you know, on duty, I would just cover whatever they needed. Um, and eventually it kind of led into doing a lot on politics and policing. Um, if you are all, uh, if you've all been in Seattle for a while, you know that we've had the consent decree with the Justice Department and just some ongoing stories that really called for people who, you know, we had to take some time and you know, follow these court hearings, read the court documents. Um, so it's been an interesting vantage point to cover law enforcement um, and the way it's intersected. You know, we've had the ballot measures like Initiative 940 to, for how we're going to investigate um, when police officers kill someone, um, issues like that. And then the pandemic, you know, we all kind of pivoted to cover that. And I would say that um, having the church connection was sort of was helpful at that point to just kind of when you, whenever there's breaking news, you know that if you kind of focus on a church in the town where you're going or a faith community, you're going to find people who are thoughtful, who are open, welcoming, helping you make sense of it. So that's been a good connection as we've covered COVID and all the different ways that that's been playing out as well. I worked for NPR for 20 years now, starting in South America, and then we got here in 2005. I used to be more of a general assignment reporter when we came to the States, and then I kind of drifted into um, around 20, 2009 or so, I drifted into uh, more stories about uh, tech and privacy because I was becoming more of an intense preoccupation, especially after the um, uh, warrantless wiretapping under the Bush administration. Uh, I did that for a few years, and then that that morphed into covering law enforcement um, and uh, I signed on as the uh, the main law enforcement correspondent. Nobody wanted to do the job for some reason. Uh, that was about six months before Ferguson. Uh, and it's been kind of busy ever since. Um, in terms of covering things during the era of COVID, my routine is only a little different than most people's because I already worked in, you know, I work for NPR nationally there in DC. Uh, my editor's in LA. That was always true. I've always been at home in this room here. Um, you know, I've got my my mic, you know, I've got all my gear here. Um, I was already doing that before. Uh, of course, before it would be punctuated by reporting trips. I would go to Florida or Texas and uh, gather tape, as we say, for a feature story, come back here, write it up. Or sometimes I'd report from the from, from other places, but then I'd just be home when I was writing, which was wonderful. Um, but what changed is now my entire family came home and spending the day with me. And uh, <laughs> that's, for me, what changed with COVID is that now everyone's doing it with me. Um, but uh, but you know, covering obviously policing this year has been um, has kept me busy. Uh, even though I don't leave this room as much as I'd like to, um, I do sometimes. Uh, but uh, it's uh, it's a lot uh, it's a lot more virtual. Of course, now everybody's available on these systems too. So in some ways, you gathering gathering the interviews has become easier because everyone's kind of on my uh, on my. Uh, technical wavelength all of a sudden, but, uh, but that's, that's sort of what my life has been like for the last few years. Well, we've, we've heard from you both a little now about the, the kind of wider array of coverage that you do. Uh, when it comes to your faith and your faith tradition, my, my question has to do with what it's like for you now to cover these topics from a faith perspective, or at least informed, presumably by a faith perspective. Does your faith, for example, make it difficult for you to cover certain subjects or does it open you to possibilities that uh, might be shunned by um, secular reporters? I was thinking about these questions and uh, I know Dan and I talked about um, the Living Lutheran 
magazine has a cover story kind of about faith and politics. And um, I thought that article was really helpful at talking about, I think that journalism and our faith is actually, they dovetail really well for me. I mean, there's a, I think most journalists have a, you know, kind of a, an interest in looking at the impacts of government on the most vulnerable, you know, covering prisons, what's, you know, issues affecting children, um, you know, and I could name a lot of reporters, um, many of whom I don't think necessarily, um, you know, have a faith life, but they, you know, our work is all very much motivated by the same interests and passions. So I feel like it comes together really well. I've never really had a conflict or anything like that. I mean, it's, um, I, I, you know, I think the, the standards, the principles of good journalism, the kind of the mid 20th century sort of ideal of journalism, which, you know, is a pretty rare moment in history when you think about it, uh, is, uh, you know, the, the kind of come out of uh, historically out of the Reformation, out of the Enlightenment. Um, you know, the, 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 they're not incompatible philosophies, but at the same time, I, I, I do think that uh, the fact that so many of my colleagues now, probably the vast majority, uh, don't have, you know, especially aren't Christian, but aren't certainly aren't practicing, um, does mean that uh, you, you more, every now and then, you know, you, you have an insight that they don't. Um, I mean, that's especially true at NPR, I think, you know, it's, it's a, the, uh, uh, there's sort of a growing problem of sort of a uh, cluelessness, cultural cluelessness about, um, you know, the faith of the majority of Americans uh, in the newsroom. And so every now and then I'll find myself in the uncomfortable position of having to point out uh, how, you know, certain assumptions are just off base. Um, but that's, that's more about, you know, <laughs> that's more about cultural literacy. That's not, it's less about how we do our jobs. I think, I think the real, that dynamic that's really interesting and it's sometimes concerning in journalism right now is sort of the rise of the new faith, you know, the new sort of ideology, um, kind of a post-religious uh, religion, um, which is which is pretty strong in the newsrooms. And, and um, uh, you know, it's hard not to be a member of that particular, you know, undeclared faith. Uh, and that, that, I think, as I get older, is becoming kind of more of, more of the tension than anything else. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, having an in- insight that that others lacking a, a faith perspective might have. Can you think of any example where that's uh, or an assumption that you've identified where that's that's played itself out in the newsroom? Well, just I mean, just in a political season, you know, the 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 the, the kind of you know when you don't know a, a community in detail or personally, you, you, you know, it's just natural. You default to stereotype, um, you know, and, and the assumptions that, uh, you know, some of the story assignments are made just based on sort of these, these big um, stereotypes about who's on whose side, you know, Christians within quotation marks are all for Trump. Um, you know, uh, uh, there's a, there's a sense of, of sort of uh you know, the only people who go to church are in small towns in the Midwest. Um, you know, they're, 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 there's kind of a, uh, I'd say, sort of a superficial understanding uh, that, that leads to some silly news news assignments, <laughs> frankly. Has that ever been a topic for either of you uh, with your colleagues in, say, making that observation? I've wanted to more than I, you know, it's hard. Like, I, I heard... Um, we had an interview with someone who, an, a book author, and I felt like the interviewer was kind of um, lumping this author in with, you know, with more conservative Christians. And I couldn't tell if he was, you know, 
if, if that was really justified and if he was even aware that he was doing it or he was aware that there is this really, you know, I wish I had more opportunities to show the breadth of Christianity and how, you know, how intricate it is sometimes. But um, so I, you know, I've tried to kind of gently let people know, or, you know, sometimes we can just post a, a story or a resource that we think is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I think is, is great about coming from our tradition is I think I see ways that religious people can really be a resource for reporters. I mentioned this before about, you know, when there's some breaking news story, you know, if you, you know, you know that if you go to a faith institution, people are going to, you know, be thoughtful and welcoming. Um, Like one idea I had was uh, when COVID started was all thinking of all the chaplains and the work that they're doing. And I think there's been great journalism about, you know, chaplains work, but um, so that gave me a way to, I talked to, and Dan, I sent you a link to this story, but um, I happened to find like a palliative care physician and then um, a woman who's the head of kind of, I think she's the head of like spiritual care at Swedish. And they talked about all the ways that they were trying to help connect patients with their families because of the really rigid, you know, visiting restrictions that we've had. And I just, my editor said it was great because I could take people inside these places that we physically can't go right now. And I think I just maybe had, you know, I wasn't the only one to think of this, like my news director, she's Catholic. And she said that she had a cousin who's a priest who was, you know, having to give last rites to people and wear PPE. And so there, it wasn't like I was the only one who had these connections, but I just think it does give us, you know, sometimes a connection or a sense of people that we can draw on to help us tell our stories. We've talked a little bit, and I was really curious, uh, fascinated by this, what you mentioned earlier, Amy, about how you as a person of faith often share in common uh, an interest, for example, as a journalist to cover uh, and make sure that there is coverage of the vulnerable in our society, people on the margins. That's a, that's really a, a, an issue of what you cover, but what about how you cover stories? Uh, Is there anything about your faith that informs the way in which you, you cover these stories, like the one that you just mentioned, for example? Um, I think Martin and I have talked about this before. Just one thing is really um, trying to let people kind of be their best selves with us. And, you know, there's, you know, yeah, in a more juvenile sense, it's great to have that gotcha moment where the person, you know, makes some flip comment or something embarrassing happens to them and you seize on that. I mean, we've all seen examples of journalism that do that. And I think I'll let Martin add in, but I, I feel like we're trying to do the opposite. Uh, you know, we're trying to see things through the person's eyes as they're trying to, you know, make their case for their opinion, for their position, um, and let them be, you know, fully who they are. I mean, if, you know, we can let our listeners and our readers decide if that case, if that person's position makes sense and if they're thoughtful. Um, I think we're still really trying to bring voices into dialogue to seek out um, positions to make sure our listeners, you know, if they're in a more homogeneous media landscape, just at least let them, you know, really try to get a sense of where people on other sides are coming from. I, you know, cause I think the truth will, you know, ultimately be the best gift that we can give people or, you know, the, the most genuine sense of these positions. And then people can still navigate that and, and make their own decisions. I've, I've, what's what's the expression? The truth shall set you free. Yeah, <laughs> um, uh, yeah I mean, this is a hobby horse. That's why uh, of mine. That's why I think Amy is uh, 
is suggesting uh, this topic. I mean, I, I, we're at a moment of inflection and crisis in journalism in America right now where the whole idea of objectivity is in ill repute, um, especially younger journalists uh, mock the idea of objectivity um, because, you know, they rightly point out no one is objective. Um, but of course, that's that was never really the, the point of objectivity. That point of objectivity was an ethic of how you approach the people and the subjects you're reporting on. And are you accounting for, are you being honest about your own um, biases and accounting for them? And I think, um, you know, if you take, you know, the, 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 <laughs> one of the, cent the central precept of, one of the central precepts of, uh, uh, you know, the Sermon on the Mount uh, is, you know, um, well, I guess, no, where, where's the golden rule that uh, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you? I forget where that is, but that's, that, that is, that should be, you know, that, that, that is the, in the roots of that old objective, objectivity idea where you need to look at the person you're interviewing, even and acknowledge that that person may be on the other side of the fence from you politically, just, you know, that's just reality. We all have our biases and then ask yourself, okay, now I'm going to take this interview and I can, I can do a, a fake objectivity of, you know, putting him a certain number of times in my story with certain number of quotes, uh, and I will call that balanced. But if I'm choosing the quotes that make him look like a clown or, or, or the cartoonish versions of his argument, as opposed to the arguments that he made that really actually got to me, then I'm not, being, I'm not treating him as I wish he would treat me. And I think we as journalists have to keep reminding ourselves that, um, you know, when people and, you know, people are the people, you know, people are hurt by our stories. People are affected by our stories. You know, if we don't, if we don't think of them in terms of how we would want to be treated if we were in their shoes uh, and, and we don't seek out the best arguments that our opponents might make, uh, then we're, um, you know, I think we're, we're failing both on a, on a religious and on a ethical level. When, when you appeal to the golden rule, of course, that has traction for a faith group like ours, uh, I'm curious if it has any kind of traction with the uh, the secular among your colleagues or the spiritual but not religious. Do you feel like they buy into this uh, golden rule? Uh, at the moment, it's at the moment it's on the defensive. I really, I mean, they wouldn't put it in those terms. We wouldn't talk about it in terms of the golden rule. But you know, um, there is a there is a sense right now of. Um, you know, journalism, you know, both sideism is, is the, uh, the, the term people use to mock the idea of objectivity, um, uh, which obviously if you're doing it, if you're a reporter and you're just putting this, he said, she said, that is kind of lazy journalism, but that doesn't mean that's how that has to happen. You can be, you can, you can be respectful to, to the intellectual integrity of everybody in your story without being a both sideist. Um, but right now I'd say that uh, in newsrooms, there's kind of a battle over whether to be an advocate or not, whether or not you know, act, activism journalism is on the ascendance, in part because it's what sells. I mean, in, in an age of social media, um, you know, very few people download the AP app and just read the, the wire stories about things. Everybody downloads the apps from the, from the outlet that more mirrors their way of seeing the world. They want the stuff that confirms what they believe. Uh, and that's just, that's the market now and it's becoming worse. So in that, in that world, it's really hard um, to do the less marketable thing and and try to be objective, it really is. And activism is is seen now as the greater good in journalism by a, a significant portion of my colleagues, and it's a real it's a real tension. Uh, Amy, did you wish to speak to that question? Um, 
Yeah, there's just, a, it's a, I mean, it's an interesting time, but there's a lot, you know, we are really trying, and I think my organization has a lot of thoughtful people in it, you know, who, um, I mean, I feel like we're in this kind of, you know, storm of um, reactions and people trying to make sense of the news. Um, but we are trying to, you know, look at kind of who, you know, how the powerful are affected by our coverage and how people without power are affected by our coverage. Um you know, kind of look at where, you know, how we decide, you know, one of the big privileges that we have is deciding what's newsworthy, who to cover, how to cover them. Um, so I think we're, you know, really thinking about how, you know, how, how journalism has used that in the past and how we should use it at this moment. Um, I don't think every story we do necessarily has like, every possible position in it, but I think sometimes we're kind of trying to take a slice of something um, and hoping that people eventually feel like they get, you know, the full picture. Um, but, and I know that some people say, well, I try to have a media diet where I, you know, read stuff, you know, I watch MSNBC, but then I watch Fox just to see how it's being presented, you know, to people who are different from me. Um, I think that's the kind of thing that just raises your blood pressure in a kind of a superficial way. I, I think it's better to read something. Um, and I'm saying that from either side, you know, to just kind of dip into this other place that, you know, is going to be jarring. You know, I'd say, I think it's just really important to read more in-depth um, coverage of people and issues, you know, like um, I'm thinking of things like the book Eviction by Matthew Desmond, where he really, um, this is, it came out a few years ago, I think he's a sociologist, and he spent time in Milwaukee in communities where people were really poor, um, a black neighborhood, and then a neighborhood that's a mobile home park that I think is mostly white residents, and just talking about these mechanisms and how they work and how people are affected and just something like that, I feel like I get more insight out of than trying to monitor breaking news the way it's presented from these different channels. Do you go directly to, or and would you advise, you mentioned, or Martin mentioned uh, the, the, the AP itself, uh, is that sort of the, the first go-to for someone who wants to be informed in a way that's different than what seems to be prevailing right now? I mean, I'd say for daily stuff, I mean, Amy's right. If you want to understand the bigger picture, you need you need um, longer form stuff, um, preferably from someone who's not just selling a narrative, but someone who's actually spent time and is trying to be honest. But if you're looking for accounts of the daily news, um, I would say, yeah, a wire service app on your phone is, is you know, just if you just want to take a glance, is it, probably going to be, because they have to... Uh, <laughs> They're still being carried in, in uh, on, on platforms that have, of different political ilk, so they actually have to write in a way that's honest, uh, at least about. Well, honest is a, is a troubling word, but uh, you know, they, they, I would say the AP app is probably the best basic account of the day's news. Um, I, I frankly think, uh, if possible, can, if you can totally um, unplug the uh, the news aspects of your social media feed, you should. I think news via social media is probably the most toxic thing that's happened in the last 10 years. I think it, it's a, to blame for a lot of the bad things happening right now. I think the, the, the algorithms are so um, insidious in how they reinforce um, the stuff that, that, that makes you mad. They know what it, they, they, the programming knows what makes you mad. It keeps you engaged, make sure you don't put that thing down. 
Um, and I think it's a completely distorted view of the world. And if you can stop to getting news through social media, I would highly recommend it. <laughs> wow. Uh, I have more questions, but we're at the half hour. And so what I, what I'd like to do, and I see we've got, we have a pretty, uh, pretty good chat going. I'd like to open up uh, questions, comments uh, from, from uh, those who are attending. Uh, so you're welcome either to, to raise your hand or just, uh, just unmute and we can try it that way. I have a question. When when politicians are trying to work the media coverage by what they're saying, how do you react? And I'll give the exam an example from yesterday. President Trump made a statement at a rally, um, and then said how he thought the media would cover it. Uh, it was a statement about it's beautiful when you use tear gas on crowds, and he said the media is going to come out and say that's terrible that he's saying that's beautiful. How does the reporter hearing that statement then like keep themselves out of the story? I, I did hear it on NPR, so <laughs> um, I just I, I feel like they, you know, they're trying to use the reporter as a pawn in that um, situation. I mean, uh, Trump. I mean, what I was saying before about uh, social media being the source of of all ills in the world. Obviously, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but Trump is a perfect. Uh, he he instinctively understands how powerful it is to um, to throw red meat out every day and to change the subject. And you know we've had an ongoing discussion since before he was elected internally about you know uh, you know the man tweets for fifty times a day, half the things no other president would have ever said. Um, do you run after all of them? I remember I remember the uh, the, the the you know internal sort of arguments uh, in the early days of the administration about it. I mean, we can't just keep letting him set the agenda. Uh, and I think there was a pulling back. I think I think I think um, not as much as I'd like, but you know we certainly don't run after all those things the way we used to. Uh, you know, the DC my DC colleagues uh, I think have have learned the bitter lesson there. I mean, you know, it's a fine line. I mean, when he when he specifically is calling out journalists saying they are going to rep misreport this particular part now you know he's 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 uh confirming what his base believes which is based on a kernel of truth um you know it is true that uh, a lot of a lot of the craziest things um he's been reported to have been you know, created the greatest upset were out of context um but he says he says and does plenty of outrageous things that don't need to be exaggerated or taken out of context. So, uh, you know, when when we when we take one thing out of context, we then delegitimize all our reporting on the stuff that he did that really was, you know, egregious, right? So it it, it it's it's genius, you know? um, and so his base can basically get a permission to disregard everything we report because every now and then we do report things out of context. Now I'll, I'll give you I'll give you one very touchy but real example which is the the thing biden keeps talking about on the uh, on the campaign trail the the both side the good people on good on both sides quote right that is a misquotation that is just he he was a you know he was doing his usual word salad he was rambling um and he was talking about charlottesville and he did say there were good people on both sides but then like in a sentence a sentence or two later, if you look at the whole paragraph, he says, I'm not talking about the neo-Nazis and the white supremacists. I'm talking about other people in the groups, right? You never hear that part of that quote because the 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 the, the both people on the good people on both sides is such political fodder. It's it's perfect, you know. Um, and and so Biden keeps quoting that part. We have made it true. I mean, you know, I think most of my a lot of my colleagues in the newsroom keep repeating it because it's become true. 
Um, and so, you know, those little moments that that his base are aware of then give them permission to ignore all the other times when he said something truly outrageous uh, because they can assume it's the same case, the same situation. Uh, so you know, when he makes us part of the story, I mean, and, and we knew from the very beginning, I mean, he was not going to be running against the Democrats. Uh, he's running against the media. And that, that, oh, <laughs> that's, that's, you know, it's almost impossible to, to, to cover someone who's made you the opponent. Uh, and it's also brilliant. You know, he's not the first person to do that. I mean, Chavez did it in, in Venezuela. Um, you know, I used to cover South America. And I remember that this, this exact move um, by other autocrats is you make the media the enemy and it works. Yeah, I have a, a couple of thoughts on just his impact. And in a way, I feel lucky because I am very locally focused and I just keep trying to keep the focus on, you know, there's a lot there's a lot happening politically beyond him. But, um, you know, when I hear his inflammatory quotes, I think, OK, let's look at the powerful people who are supporting him who don't really care about these inflammatory quotes because they're busy, you know, seeing the environmental protections get rolled back and, and, you know, tax breaks and all the ways that they're profiting from this. So let's keep the lens on them and as a journalist, you know, and not always follow every, every comment that he makes. Um, but then I also have this urge and I think it does tie in with our faith perspective of let's keep, you know, putting ourselves out there to be open to the people who are following him and not let ourselves get so divided, you know? So I feel like, um, you know, because I feel like there are vested interests that want us to be at odds, that want Americans to be polarized from each other. So can we keep pushing against that and bridging it and finding out the ways that we do connect or that, you know, we do have things in common across political divides and regional divides? Um, I hate the way the media has been getting, you know, shrinking during all of this, because I do think that especially like small town papers and other organizations, you know, are, are so vital. Um at this point. Um, but then I also, I think about the Christian values of witness and just, you know, openness and extending ourselves in a loving way. But then I also think about the story of Jesus at the temple calling out corruption. And so I think that's an attention for me sometimes is, uh, you know, righteous anger versus, you know, the focus on, on being a peacemaker. Well, here's a here's a question that uh, that one of our participants is asking: How can we help our country to heal? And I think you know, looking back already on this conversation, you've given us some uh, suggestions for how you know we might push things in a different direction. Uh, going back to not only the the Sermon on the Mount, the Golden Rule, but also the examples you gave, Amy, from uh, elsewhere in Scripture when Jesus turns the tables over at the temple and, and, and exhibits righteous anger toward those who are, who are corrupting things. How do we, how, where do we go from here? How do we begin to, uh, to, to heal things? Uh, one of the things that I'm hearing is that we need to resist this constant um, uh, pressure to be at odds with other people and to really step back and find out what things we share in common instead of giving into that, that other narrative, which seems to be so pervasive right now. But what other things can we do to move us in the direction of healing instead of the, the direction of hurt, which is what we seem to be in right now? Um, well, maybe metaphorically speaking, turning the other cheek, um, whether it be, you know, if you are on social media, um, when someone insults you right away because you're of the opposite camp, um, don't respond in kind. 
um, you know, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a negative advice, but what's positive advice, I would say, listen, uh, I would say, um, listen to people in good faith and um, uh, don't discount them uh, because of who they've supported in the past or who they support now. Um, uh, it, I, I just, I really do. I can't, I, I know I'm harping on the uh, social media and electronic stuff, but I think that, you know, it's, it's sort of like the, the metaphor of how people do things on the freeway. They'd never do on a sidewalk to each other. I think the mm-hmm. same thing's happening online. I think, um, I think we have to, uh, you know, if, if we still talked about, you know, <laughs> tools of the devil, <laughs> I do this, like, this is the perfect, this, this, this technology has, has, has basically tempted us on all of our biggest failings as human beings. Um, it is the village rumor mill on steroids with an algorithm <laughs> that finds us where we are most vulnerable to hatred and division. And I think if we can find ways to communicate with each other um, as human beings, you know, as, as children of God, um, you know, if you, maybe that's maybe you know, like every time you talk to anybody <laughs> online or in person, you know, start out and remind yourself this is a child of God. Uh, I think that would go a long way. Yeah, I actually had this thought about, you know, what would it be like? Because we're not, people just can't convince each other of their positions at this point. I, I, don't, I don't see that happening. And so um, I did a story kind of right, it was, I think it was in 2015, and it was actually about politically diverse families and how people talk to each other. And um, I interviewed Rob McKenna and talking about how his daughter was, she was like the head of the Democrats at UW. And um he was like, well, we don't talk a lot of politics. Like we're busy being a family. You know, we don't feel like we need to, you know, get to the bottom of every single difference we have. But um, he also said, um, you know, if you're having a big gathering and, you know, you feel like someone is at the table who's being kind of shut down by the conversation, especially if you don't know someone very well, it's not a very good atmosphere to have like, you know, hard political uh, differences ironed out. And he said, you know, I try to like bring that person back in and, um, I interviewed someone at UW who, uh, a professor who talked about just trying to get, you know, have a more open conversation about how someone came to the positions that they have. And I know it's really hard because everyone kind of feels like, well, maybe I'm, I'm bending over backwards constantly. And these other people are so strident. It's really not fair that I have to keep making this effort, you know? Um, But I do think that we need to try to, you know, reach out to each other, certainly in our families, you know, I hate here when I hear people say, oh, I don't even want to go home to this, you know, for this holiday anymore. You know, I think we need to keep those connections going, even when it's hard. But that's more personal. That's not as much through my work, I guess. Question for journalists. I noticed there's a lot of kooky things that the, either the president or his, that come from the White House that even NPR will report. And I feel like it's sort of like the emperor's new clothes. We're all trying to pretend that these messages aren't insane. Do journalists have any sort of, like there's some things that are so inane. I'm like, why did you even bother reporting that? I mean, what was the point? And a lot of it, I, I, I listen to NPR all day long. So they, a lot of time they'll give unbiased, they won't put any, other messages, but yet it's like, why did you even give this airtime? We were kind of talking about that before. I think. I yeah, mean, you're right. maybe you know, that's the thing. It, it's, uh, yeah, I think we're learning. Um, uh, and and you know, Trump won't be the last president who who does this. Uh, you know, uh, I, I think I think um, the fact. 
this this kind of began in the early '90s when when um, for the first time presidents started giving interviews to local TV stations in in certain areas they wanted to target and and going around the national media or the the White House press corps because they you know <laughs> you're going to have a more um, uh, you're going to have a friendlier interview. You're going to have an interview by someone who doesn't know the issues very well. Uh, and they, and that, that became a thing where, where they would just like line up. The, the president would be sitting in a hotel suite somewhere or a candidate and just oh, do great. one one interview after another with all these local TV stations. And they were really friendly. Uh, and that was the beginning. And then when social media and the Internet came along, it really accelerated the ability of a president to go around uh, you know the the gatekeepers, the people who, mm. who who knew the White House. You know, and 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 that that's just become. I mean, I think we're now at the like the extreme version of what was starting in the early '90s with that sort of going around the the, the people in the know. Um, and so, you know, we've had to respond in kind. You know, now we're 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 not competing anymore with other radio stations or other newspapers as much as we're competing with the president himself. You know, yeah. in his platform, because he can speak directly to the people, um, and that's why he tweets, and, and that's why no president. I mean, have you noticed that Biden has never promised to not tweet if he's elected president? Even though I think a lot of people would welcome that news. I mean, because it'd be giving up an incredibly powerful tool, communications tool. Uh, so we then have to figure out, you know, uh, do we ignore? some of the more in, you know, insubstantial frothy stuff. He just shoots off during the day. And oftentimes these are like half sentences. This is like a dangling dependent clause that doesn't even have an object. And yet there's just enough in there that's crazy that yeah. in normal times we would report it. But do you really report it if, uh, you know, we've started to say, you know, the last few years, okay, we were not going to, we're going to set our own agenda. We're going to ignore that because it's just talk. Yeah, but it's blowing up online. So we look stupid. Yeah. And so we... Uh. We, then everyone's going to pay attention to the direct reporting of everyone fighting about it online, and we pretend it never happened. We also look like idiots. So it, um, it's it, there's no real solution to to you know whether you pay attention or ignore something he says that's just pure red meat. I, I didn't think about it from the that I thought you know you ignore bad behavior you know when you're raising a toddler and you behavior <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I'm like. Yeah, but if the whole neighborhood's talking about your toddler, you got to do something, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> yep. We have a, a question from Mark. The question is, do you see any political will building to build to put some regulation on social media, whether to increase libel risk for the speaker or anything to cut down the propaganda and misinformation? Section 230, huh? <laughs> that's, a, that's a big talking point right now is whether to... Uh, uh, on the Trump side is to uh, repeal a section of federal law that uh, basically gives sort of safe harbor to to um, uh, social media platforms uh, to to host content without being blamed for it, um, you know, in terms of liability. Uh, and, uh, you know, so that big the, the, right now, the Republican talking point is if, if Twitter and Facebook aren't nicer to us, um, uh, we should uh, revoke Section 230 so that then, you know, we regulate them and, and that kind of thing. I, I, you know, it all depends, you know, the, it all depends on whose ox is getting gored that day, uh, the person, you know, who who, do, who supports that idea. I mean, ultimately, I'm, I'm a real First Amendment guy. I, I think, you know, I think regulation of speech um, uh, is always just, it never works. Um, it just turns into a huge mess. Uh, I, I in some ways I would be more open to the idea of breaking up monopoly uh, platforms and making them compete on things like 
just the, the quality of the conversation uh, and the quality of their algorithm. I think that would make more sense is to force more competition rather than the government stepping in in some way and regulating um, what people say on, on any platform. But I don't know if Amy has thoughts about that. Um, actually, I'm going to go to Todd's question. Um, so he asked about whether we disclose our faith to colleagues and listeners. Um, I I do think that, and there you know, and again, yeah, we do kind of try to stay out of the story usually. But I think if there were any story where it seemed relevant, I think that transparency is so important. And um, one question Dan had posed to us is if we'd ever had any conflicts in our reporting because of our faith. And I at first I couldn't think of anything, and then I remembered that when um, the pandemic first started. You know, there's a lot of, uh, especially because I'm so locally rooted in my reporting. Um, yeah, there's a lot of Lutheran uh, nursing homes, skilled nursing facilities, assisted living. And on one hand, people in my church kind of helped me cover it because they were the first people to be like, yeah, we're having to go outside my parents' window and like try to sing to them and wave to them because we can't see them. Um, and that was at a nurse, a Lutheran, you know, or heritage institution. And so they kind of clued me into the emergency that was happening. So that was really good. Then we got an anonymous tip um, to the station about a Lutheran nursing home here in Seattle, where the person was like a contractor who came in and said, they are not segregating their patients based on COVID status very effectively. Um, And this wasn't a place I'd ever, I, I think we had a guest speaker from there once at our church. So it's like, I had heard of them. I didn't feel like I had a very strong connection. I was definitely alarmed to see, you know, see this. Um, so I was kind of like, okay, what should I do? I want to be really transparent that maybe I have a conflict uh, with, you know, trying to cover this. Um, I wasn't the main person on all of these stories, but I just thought, okay, I want to be really open. We tried to follow up with the person who sent us the tip and get a little more information. And that person didn't respond. Um, I tried to, I also shared it with my colleagues. So other people would know that this story was a possibility possibility, something we might want to look at. So I think, you know, being transparent and not trying to control things is the best way I can think of to sort through these challenges. Um, You know, another challenge, but in a way it's, it's a good one is uh, the presiding municipal court judge um, for Seattle is a member of our church. You know, I'm proud to know him. I think he's, he's, you know, a wonderful person. Um, I have thought I might want to cover some of the stuff that the court is doing lately. How would I do that? Or maybe would I ask a colleague to do it? I definitely would tell my editors about, you know, just that we, that we are acquaintances um, and kind of go from there. So openness is, is my main thought on this, but I'd love to hear what other people think. Lori, did you want to add? Yeah. Add the, question? Question, the question I had is what is the obligation of, or value of providing free access to news stories. Um, And I've heard people talk about that, you know, OAN is free, but the New York Times and Wall Street Journal are not and other, other, uh, other sources, obviously NPR is free. Yay. Yeah. Um, Thank you for that. (laughs) uh, (laughs) But, um, but if we want a well-informed public, you know, how do, how do we facilitate that without also leaving these, um, especially smaller news outlets without a source of revenue or how can we balance those considerations and, and get to the best outcome in your mind? Well, the joke is always that you get what you pay for, right? But, um, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, you, uh, the, 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 the reason NPR is free uh, online um, uh, is is because it's a nonprofit. And so, the you know, for the last 20 years, as the news business has gone through this kind of uh, 
business model shock. Um, uh, some a lot of good journalism has gone over to the you know have basically followed you know used our model and 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 so you know you hear about ProPublica and stuff like that. Well, they're just imitating the the, the public radio model, the public broadcasting model of a, of a nonprofit. Um, so you don't have shareholders, you don't need to make as much money. Uh, you basically you've got to cover your costs and you got to expand, but you can't uh, you don't have to. Uh, worry about paying for things. I mean, the reason the New York Times costs money is because they have shareholders. They actually have to make a profit. Um, that's the main reason. Uh, so I guess, I guess, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of, there's been a lot of conversation for years now about whether um, most sort of uh, respected journalism, whatever that is, uh, will end up being nonprofit or not. And the fact that New York Times is now doing so well um uh, maybe indicates that maybe it was premature to say that. Maybe maybe it is possible still to make money and um, and be. I mean, I I do think the New York Times is becoming more biased in one direction, but you know, in general, they are still pretty mainstream, uh, and they char- are charged. And uh, you know, maybe you know, is it? It's not their responsibility to provide a free service to the to the, <laughs> to the public. You know, so I guess uh, I, I don't know how you solve that except with more more nonprofits. It's kind of it's kind of like commercial TV and public TV, right? It's um, you know uh, either you, you can pay for something or you can have it for free. But if it's for free, people are going to be it's probably going to be a nonprofit model. Yeah, my fantasy is just to maybe start my own little news blog or newspaper somewhere that needs needs one when I retire. You know, just because I feel like so many communities just don't have that basic. You know, here's what the city council is doing right now. Um, so if anyone can, you know, subscribe to a paper in a you know a place that needs it, that's I think that's a great gesture. But I Definitely. we really need broader ways to support local you know journalism. I don't I yeah. You know, I, I think that Amy points out something really important is that, you know, for all of our obsession with Trump and the national races and national controversies, um, the, the real, the people's business, you know, most of the stuff that affects your life is happening in Olympia and in Seattle. Uh, and to some degree, even the King County Council, which no one even knows anything about. Uh, and, and there's less and less coverage of those things. Um, you know, fewer people at those meetings, if anybody. Uh, and that's that's a big problem. That's a really big problem. So if you're going to pay for journalism, pay for local journalism. And also farther out, I mean, Seattle, at least the, you know, the concentration of media is happening here and in other parts of the country. And then other places are, you know, don't have that that reporter yeah. who, to keep them. Yeah, the small town papers are dying. I want to go back to uh, another problem that you shared earlier, uh, maybe a frustration that uh, when it comes to the religious literacy of your colleagues, one of the challenges that you, you, you face is finding ways to, to perhaps to, to indicate that there is more to Christianity than just the extreme that, that seems to garner all the media coverage and that there, as you said, Amy, there's more breadth to the tradition and so forth. One of, the, one of our participants, Nancy, uh, asks, and this is related then to the point I'm making, what are, the, what are appropriate ways that we as mainline churches can uh, um, report our ministries and activities to the media so that at least we're making an effort to, to contribute to that conversation and open it up instead of letting the two extremes dominate the conversation? Um, I think, you know, events where you just put the word out to uh, – you know, to the local media, like we're having, you know, 
you know, we're having food distribution or um, sometimes you just never know because the news cycle is so weird. And some days um, journalists are spread really thin and other days um, it's like there's not as much going on. And, you know, so they'll flock over, especially if it's kind of like keyed into an event or a holiday or a public issue that people are talking about. If you're kind of like, here's what we're doing about this. And you give uh, the press a chance to come and kind of, you know, take photos and see it in action, you know, maybe no one will come and don't be, you know, don't be put off by that. But other days it'll just be the right fit. And I think people will show up. Um, I know my colleague, Ruby DeLuna, I sent Dan a link. She just did a story about um, a church in South King County that has like a drive-through food distribution and the National Guard is helping with it. And there's like, you know, college students helping with it. And it's just just this really interesting, you know, coalition of people jumping in um, to serve an urgent need right now. And so it's not exclusively about the church, but there are she talks to the pastor and I think it's just like a nice story about how where people are, you know, filling these, fulfilling these needs right now. I don't know if Dan brought this up earlier, but he's actually a former journalist. He and I were on the high school newspaper together in uh, Orland, California on the Orland <laughs> high school Oracle. And I like to know. Yeah, yeah. Dan's a great writer. And you can, obviously you can see the parallels between what he's doing now and that. I like to joke with him that the pandemic has made him go into publishing too. And uh, <laughs> that's my question question is, what can churches learn from media organizations about connecting with their congregations and picking up some of the things that media organizations have already known intrinsically about connecting with their audiences? Are there tips and tricks you would offer for the the, the broader church community in that way? I think that you're doing a podcast is great. I mean, the, it, the crucial thing is there's such generational differences in how people get their information. And, you know, so as much as we're talking about the perils of social media, you know, we have a 16 year old and she's very into politics and she gets her news, you know, she follows news organizations, but through some social media channels, um, you know, I do think that that does seem to be really crucial for a, to, to get a broad reach of people. Martin. I think, well, I think whatever the world is going to look like in six months is, is we don't even know. I mean, I, I, I think that was what you're describing is true right now. But once COVID is less of a preoccupation, I think everything's going to be so different. And I don't know what to predict. Um, I, I think it, media organizations are going to be scrambling to figure out. Uh, um, I, th I think in some ways, I, I, I wonder if like a resurgence of, of uh, interest in in-person contact is just going to take over. And, you know, maybe... Maybe we maybe churches need to be ready for that moment when people want to be in, in you know can be in, in in you know personal touch again and have just events lined up and festivals and they just I think people are just hungry for for uh, in person contact right now and maybe churches should take advantage of that hunger for when it's permissible again. We have just a few minutes left, and I uh, I wanted to uh, to make sure that we get this question in, given that we're on the eve of an election. And, uh, and I'm sure it's on everybody's minds. I got my ballot in the mail yesterday and I've been, of course, like everyone else probably here thinking about <laughs> what life is going to be like in a couple of weeks. What do you feel we as Lutheran Christians should know when it comes to what's happening politically and how it's covered, especially when it comes to the election? How do we navigate that as people of faith? I'm sorry, I'm not sure I understand. How do you navigate knowing what's true or what? Well, yeah. I mean, is there any, any kind of resource that from your pro professional perspective or faith perspective 
that can help us as we as we move into this uh, rather uncertain uh, uh, time and, and what's going on. So I guess I'm looking for resources, advice, tips for how to navigate the, the, the election coming up in a couple of weeks, how to make sense of it, what role, if any, we might play. Uh, give it time. I mean, that's certainly what everyone's saying internally is um, don't expect uh, – there may be election night clarity, but don't expect it and don't buy into anybody who wants to demand uh, clarity when it's not there. Um, you know, uh, this is going to be an election ballot counting pro process that we've never had before. Uh, there's a lot, there's going to be a lot of surprises, a lot of unknown, you know, un unforeseen glitches. Don't let it panic you. Don't let people panic you about it. Um, uh, I think patience, uh, patience is, is the key here. Yeah, luckily, I mean, this is something that's a more familiar process for all of us here in Washington. So, um, and I've always been really impressed with our elections officials. Like they're really, they're really responsive. Um, you know, they let me come inside the elections office and look around. Um, I think as we were getting ready for the presidential primary, um, they'll, yeah, they really try to be transparent. So I feel like we're in, in our, in this region, we're lucky, but, but we'll, we'll also be trying to, you know, watch for what's happening elsewhere in the country, obviously, and investigate that. My, my advice is find, uh, find some good friends and have a socially distanced uh, dinner outdoors in someone's backyard until midnight that day, and then go straight to bed. <laughs> don't even, don't turn on a TV, don't turn on a radio, just let it play out and check out, check it out in the morning. Great. I have one final question for both of you, and that is, uh, given all these uncertainties, what gives you hope? Uh, every now and then I'm reminded that uh, uh, my faith tells me that God has a plan and we don't, we're not, you know, it's not on us to fix everything. Uh, we can't and we won't. And that's, uh, <laughs> I don't know, uh, um, that's reassuring that it's not, uh, I don't need to fix, again, this internet thing, you get the sense that you have to fix the whole world when you see everybody telling you all the different things that are wrong. And then the Christian's response should be, this is in God's hands. I'll do my part. I'll do what I can. I want to be a, a tool of God's will, but this is not my responsibility to fix. Um, and we were also talking about how, uh, you know, we live in such a beautiful uh, part of the world. And Martin and I were talking about how, you know, we our kids have been such a source of hope and energy. You know, they've really helped us right now. And also just nature, whether it's, you know, bird watching, going to see a view over the water. And I was saying, you know, everything around me that I can see and hear right now is so good. So why do, you know, that's not to say that I don't believe all the things that we care about that we want to change, but can we kind of at least try to hold those intention and, and remember that too? Um, and I sent Dan also an interview we did with um, the pastor at a, she's at a downtown Seattle church. And she, we talked to her during the pandemic, but before the, um, all the protests and demonstrations this summer, I'd love to catch up with her again. But um, she talked about how she lights a candle every day. That's kind of her gesture of hope. And so things like that kind of go through my mind, you know, we just have to, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll keep trying. And I'll, I'll we'll look into uh, uh, posting, uh, making available some of these articles that you sent me. I've, I've got a lot of good. Uh, and 
And also, of course, Amy mentioned it earlier, the article in the most recent Living Youth magazine on, on politics can be kind of another helpful way to try to make sense of things. Um, Martin, your, uh, your comment uh, reminds me of Niebuhr's serenity prayer and of how we are we're invited to recognize the difference between we, what we can and can't change and praying for wisdom to know that difference, doing what we can to change things that we can. And then, of course, giving the rest to God or, or leaving it in God's hands, as you said. I find that's one way to help me stay spiritually sane in, uh, in this rather insane uh, time of American history and life. So. Isn't that Christian liberty? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, Martin Luther's Christian freedom. Absolutely. Uh, and before him, Paul. Uh, we want to thank both of you for being with us today. This was a fantastic conversation. I invite folks and Amy and Martin, if you have a few extra minutes to linger, but formally, we'll bring this forum to a close. For those of you who uh, want to continue the conversation, our next uh, God Talk will feature uh, Thomas J. Ord, author of Art of God Can't, uh, how, making sense of tragedy uh, and abuse from a faith perspective. So please uh, check our website or your, cor your course catalogs for more information. Uh, once again, thank you, Amy and Martin, for being with us. It was a delight uh, to speak with you today. Thanks for the great Thanks for questions. It was really a pleasure. We really appreciate it. Thank you.